In this week's parsha, we have the Aseris Adibros, and one of the Aseris Adibros is Losachmod, do not covet. But the Ebenezer explains that do not covet really means not just do not deeply covet, but it means even don't desire. And the Pusuk explains what it means. Do not desire base re'echa, the house of your friend, Losachmod, Eishas re'echa, do not desire the wife of your friend, Avdo, Vamasa, Vasharo, Vachomaro, Vachola, Shel re'echa, anything that your friend has, anything that he has you should not desire. And this is a very broad concept, not to desire another person's property or his situation in life. If a person gets a raise or a person gets a great honor, I'm not supposed to be jealous. I'm just supposed to recognize that Hashem runs the world. I'm not supposed to be jealous. And then the Ebenezer Ezra brings a very interesting question. He says that many people ask, how is it possible? You can tell me don't steal. You can tell me and don't do things improperly. But how can you tell me not to desire? Imagine that I love cars. And my next door neighbor shows up in a green Maserati. It's just the color I love. And it's just the car I love. You can tell me don't steal it. You can tell me don't be nasty. And then how can you tell me not to desire? Desire is a basic human trait. I like it. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to say the wrong thing. I'm not going to do the wrong thing. But how can you tell me not to desire things that are beautiful, things that are attractive, things that I like? How could the Torah demand from me something that seems to be impossible? And Ebenezer says, I'll tell you the answer. He says, let me begin with a mushal. Imagine you have a villager, a very simple villager, and one day the princess comes by in the royal coach, and this villager sees the princess. He knows that in a million years he can't ever marry the princess, he can never be with her. So because she's so distant, he doesn't even desire her because it's, he says to himself, what am I, one of these fools are going to dream about having uh, wings to fly? There's no way that I'm going to marry the princess, be with the princess. She's so far removed from him that he won't even desire her, and therefore he doesn't even think about it. And explains to him in Ezra that any maskil, any wise person will recognize that exactly what the person is supposed to get is decreed by Hashem. How much money, how much honor, exactly their life situation. And if I'm not decreed to marry this woman, there's nothing I can do to change that. If I'm not decreed to get that money, there's nothing I'm going to do to change that. If I'm not decreed to own that home, I can't change it. Everything is in the Yad Hashem. Once I recognize that everything is under Hashem's dominion, under Hashem's control, explains the Ebenezer, obviously then I'm not going to desire I'm going to view it just like that villager. Just like the villager sees the princess and sees, it's so impossible, it's so impossible for me to marry her that he won't even think about her, and won't even desire her. So too, says the Ebenezer, a person has to recognize that anything that Hashem has not given to me is impossible for me to attain, and therefore the Torah tells me, do not desire, because once I have the right bitochan, the right understanding, obviously I will not desire. And this is a very famous Ebenezer Ezra and a very great principle in Torah. And if you think about it, it's also a very, very difficult concept to understand. And I'll explain to you why. One of the, unfortunately, weakest elements in our entire arsenal is Bitochen. If you've ever really worked on Bitochen, and personally I can tell you I spent much, much time working on it, it is a very, very difficult midah to work on. To really recognize that everything is in the hand of Hashem, and no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. It's theologically wonderful. In theory, it's very easy to say the words, but in practical terms, to actually feeling when I'm walking down the street, 
and a car stops and somebody jumps out facing me, it's very hard at that moment to fully recognize that my entire life, my entire destiny, everything is in the hand of Hashem. Bitochan is something we work on, and hopefully we get it to a certain extent, maybe 20%, 25%, but it's never brilliantly clear. As much as we work on it in the thick and thin of life, it is very, very difficult to really be margish it. Rabbi Shiva Rochester would often give a mushal. He said, if you'd like to know your level of bitochan, just watch when a little dog chases you. Not a big dog, a little dog. <laughs> what happened? Shem runs the world. Nothing, no, no bad can befall me. No one can hurt me. No one can help me. And the answer is those are words. But to feel it, to live it, to really experience it, is a very, very great challenge, a great battle. And we work on it level after level, but it's minuscule little steps that we make in it, and the growth is very, very slow. But, and that's bitachon. What about desire? Desire is something we feel very acutely. And the burning flames of desire are powerful moving forces. People give up their careers for desire. People ruin their reputation for desire. And each person has their own area of desire. For some it's money, some it's honor, some it's women, some it's men, whatever it may be. But each person has an area of desire. And desire is a very, very powerful force. So listen to what the Ebenezer is saying. Take this weak little force of bitachon, and if you realize that everything's from Hashem, it's going to vanquish this powerful flame of desire. That sounds very difficult to understand. It's like taking a little water pistol, and you'll put out this flaming inferno. Desire, taiva, is a very powerful force. I see it, I like it, I want it. Well, have bitachon. Your bitachon will prevent you from desiring it. Bitachon is a very weak force. How is it going to prevent a powerful force like desire? This Eminezer sounds very difficult to understand. And to answer what, in fact, Eminezer is teaching us, let's begin with an interesting observation. In different times and different cultures, different elements were considered desirable. For instance, through much of history, a Baal Basar, a very corpulent, large individual, was considered honorable. In Europe, in the 1700s, 1800s, if a person walked into the shtibel and he was a wide, big man, he was called a balbusser, and he was treated with great covert. Why is that? Because when most of the population can barely afford the food that they eat, for a man to be able to have so much excess, and it can actually be large, not just large, but huge, it means he's so wealthy that it was considered a badge of honor. And in many societies, a woman who was large was considered very attractive. In certain Pacific cultures, it was that way. In Hawaii, even to this day, it is. In ancient Greek, it was that way. And there's a story told of a king in Africa who would fatten up his wives to such an extent that they couldn't walk. Only when she was that large was she worthy of being the queen. Then he would marry her, but not before. And throughout history, in different cultures, a very large woman was considered desirable. That's not our world today. And today, thin is in. But you see, here's the point. Thin is not innately more attractive than is large. Large is not more innately attractive than is thin. It's something that we're cultured in, and something that becomes an accepted reality. We don't think about it, we don't realize it, but when people desire it, and become something desirous, 
and we're trained in it, and we learn that. Let me give you another example. For centuries, white skin, lily white skin, was considered a sign of beauty. In the 17 and 1800s in Europe, women would walk around with parasols to keep the sun off their face. Why? Because workers were in the field all day and their skins got dark, and people who were aristocratic, who didn't have to work as laborers, had fair skin, and it was considered a sign of beauty. In much of East Asia, China, Japan, women would wear parasols all day to keep the sun off the face because lily-white skin was considered beautiful. That's not the world we live in today. In the United States of America, there are 25,000 tanning salons. Despite the known danger of sitting under those lamps, there are 25,000 salons because being tanned is considered in. Dark skin is considered more attractive. So here's the simple point. Dark skin or light skin is not innately more attractive or less attractive, but the culture accepts it that way. And if you're brought up in that culture, you're acclimated to it, you accept it, and it becomes the sign of beauty. If you'd like to see an example of what I mean, imagine you had a young fellow and his parents were Chabad Shluchim, and he was born and brought up in mainland China. Since the time he's a little guy, every woman he's seen, straight black hair, almond-shaped eyes, slim build, and that's all he's ever seen. When he's 18, he comes to America to learn yeshiva. A few years later, he's read a shidduch, a certain match, and he says, she's a nice girl, but what's with those eyes and the yellow hair? And and she's so huge. You see, what you're used to seeing, what you're accustomed to, becomes that which is attractive, and that which you learn to desire, and here's the point, and desire is innate, inborn, but what you desire can be trained, can be learnt, we learn it by the culture, if fat is in, that's what's in, thin is in, thin is in, dark skin, light skin, and they're not innately one more desirable than the other, desire is innate, but then we're trained in what to desire, and if you'd like to see an example of this, I'll give you a very interesting example. If you have a 14-year-old boy, and he's attracted to a 13-year-old girl, what would you call that? You'd call that a normal teenager. What if you have a 45-year-old man who's attracted to a 13-year-old girl? You'd call that perverse. But here's the problem. That 45-year-old man was once 14. And when he was 14, it was normal for him to be attracted to a 13, 12-year-old girl. So what happened? What happened is, as you mature, your tastes are supposed to mature, and you're no longer supposed to be attracted to young girls. It's perverse. It's a sign of something wrong. Because what you desire itself is innate, but what you desire is learned, is changed. And that's, I believe, what the Ebenezer is teaching us. You see, Sefer Achinach explains a tremendous concept. He says, there's a mitzvah for a couple to spend the first year together, but the Sefer Chinuch explains that the couple is supposed to spend as much time together as they can. But why? And one of the reasons, he explains, is because the Torah wants a man to be happily married to his wife. And during that year, he's supposed to acclimate himself to view his wife as a woman to the extent that no one else is a woman. And this is the way a woman walks, 
This is the way a woman holds a pen. This is the way a woman speaks. He's supposed to acclimate himself to his wife to the point that only she is a woman so that he has eyes for her and no one else. Because during that year, spending that time together, he's learning to be attracted to desire her and no one else. And that's exactly how the Sefer Chinuch explains the mitzvah. And I believe that's exactly what the Sefer, what the Ebenezer is teaching us. You see, if a person has straight thinking, if a person thinks to himself and recognizes, nothing is within my ability to attain that Hashem hasn't decreed. As long as I keep my thinking straight, I'm not going to desire other things. Why do I desire other things? Because I think I could have that. Why does he have it and I don't? I could have it. I should have it. I should have it. Maybe it should be mine. And when you think about it, and you think about it, you think about it, suddenly you start desiring it. But you see, desire is something that we train ourselves in. The desire itself is inborn, but what we desire is trained, and it's the thoughts in the brain, thinking them again and again and again, is what trains ourselves in thinking. Now, let me explain to you what I mean in a very interesting example. I got a call a while back from a fellow. Um, I didn't know him. But he said to me, I have a shalom bias problem. Problem with marriage? Okay. He sounded a little young, so I asked him, how long is he married? And he said, about the six months. I said, okay, what's, what's going on? He said, well, here's the problem. I don't find my wife attractive. I don't find her attractive. Her face is funny, and she's just not attractive. So I was a little curious. He clearly wasn't married that long. And so I said to him, tell me, when you were going out, did you find her attractive? Yeah. I mean, she was pretty, right? Yeah. So, and what changed? And he didn't have an answer. And it took me a little while, but not that long of digging, to find out the great secret. The great, <clears throat> great secret is that this young man was spending about an hour a day on his phone watching things that are very, very inappropriate. But do you understand what he was doing? He was training himself in desire for other women. And when you train yourself to desire other women, yeah, your wife doesn't look so attractive. <clears throat> but that's exactly what the Ebenezer is saying. If you train yourself, if you get control of your mind, then you desire what you're supposed to desire, and you don't desire that which you're not supposed to desire. And I recognize that everything is meted out by Hashem, and nothing I can do can change that. What happens is I don't desire things. I'm like that simpleton, that simple kafri, that simple villager who sees a princess and says, I can't possibly marry her, so he doesn't desire it. When a person controls his thinking... When a person controls his thoughts, he realizes there's nothing I can take from anybody else. If I wasn't given it, I shouldn't have it. Hashem doesn't want me to have it. And therefore, he doesn't allow himself to come to desire. Yes, he desires things, but not that thing. Because what we desire is trained, is learned by our thinking. And when the Ebenezer explains to us that rove mitzvahs, most mitzvahs in the Torah center around this one concept. Training the mind, training my feelings, training myself to think the thoughts that I'm supposed to think so that I feel the feelings that I'm supposed to feel so that I am the person that I'm supposed to be. And there's a magnet that you may have, and if you don't have it, go on the Shmooze site and you get it. And on that Shmooze magnet, you can read those words because the way we think becomes the way we feel, becomes who we are forever. And this concept, I believe, is what the Ebenezer is teaching us. That our thoughts greatly affect the way we feel. Our thoughts affect the way we feel, the way we think, 
the way we approach things, but it's the thinking that starts the whole process. It's not the feeling that starts it, it's the thoughts, and my thinking then changes the way I feel. And if you'd like to see a classic example of this, one of the most important books that have come out in maybe the past 40 or 50 years in the secular world is a book by Dr. David Burns called Feeling Good. Now, Dr. Burns is considered by many to be the founder of cognitive therapy. He certainly popularized it. The book sold millions of copies. And in his book, he explains the basic concepts of cognitive therapy. He says there are three principles. And principle number one, your thoughts shape your mood. When you think things, when you think negative things, when you think bad things, you're going to get in a negative mood, in a bad mood. Number two, he says, depression is caused by pervasively negative thoughts. When a person is depressed, if you follow their train of thinking, you'll see it's negative, 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 negative. And because your thoughts affect your moods, no kidding, if you start thinking in negative terms, you're going to get depressed. But the third is the most interesting. He says that when you study a depressed person, almost always their thinking is grossly distorted, twisted, meaning they have pervasively negative thinking that has no connection to reality. A person might do very, very well in school, fails a test and says, I'm a loser. I spoke to a fellow, this is an incredible, incredible Matthias, I spoke to a fellow, his father asked me to speak to him, he's about 20 years old, and he's kind of depressed, kind of down. And his father explained to me, he's a masmid, he learns a lot in yeshiva, but he feels he's not doing much. So I started talking to this fellow, and uh, I said, how are you doing? I do good. I asked him how his learning going, not terrible. I didn't learn a word, this whole year I didn't learn a word. Not a word, I didn't learn, I learned nothing. So I pressed him a little bit, and um, it turned out he learned a little bit. Actually, he learned 260 blot that year with <coughs> Rashi, Tosus, Marsha, Ramshif. 260 blot in one year is a phenomenal amount of material, and he knew it. He knew it and mastered it, and he was really an Eloi. But here was a strange part. He didn't say to me, <coughs> I didn't do much. He said, I did nothing. I accomplished nothing. So I said to him, how can you say that? If a guy learns 100 blot in a year, that's considered a great accomplishment. You learn 260 blot, and you didn't just learn it, you learned it with Tulsa's, with Marshall. How could you possibly say that you did nothing? And he said, because I could have done more. Don't you understand? I could have done 320. And so since I could have done 320, I did nothing. And I had a very tough time explaining to him that you cannot call 260 blot nothing. You could tell me you could have done more, and you could accomplish more, but you can't tell me you did nothing. But that's the twisted thinking that's almost always in a depressed person's mind. And again, what Dr. Burns shared with the world is that number one, our thinking affects our moods. Number two, it's the dark thoughts that creates depression. And number three, there's almost always twisted thinking, grossly inaccurate thoughts and because I feel I did nothing, well, guess what? person who did nothing should be depressed. But you see, that thinking is grossly off. And what I'd like to share with you is that this concept is something that is one of the most important yesodas for life. Any area that you're going to work on, 
any issue that you're going to work on, learning to control your thinking is almost always where the action's at. And let me explain to you what I mean. Let's say you're working on bitachon for argument's sake. What gives you trust in Hashem or doesn't give you trust in Hashem is the thoughts in your mind. I learn Musar on a daily basis. That means at least a half hour a day and often a lot more, I sit there and learn Musar. But what is Musar? Going over again and again and again, single concepts, thinking, wait a second, who runs the world? Do I accept the fact that Hashem is here? Yes. Hashem is right here? Yeah. So what are you afraid of? Hashem isn't strong enough? Hashem doesn't have enough money to support you? Hashem isn't powerful enough to protect you? But thinking it again and again and again, but you have to think it time after time after time, and the more you think it, the more real it becomes, the more you feel it, and that's all of learning Musar. By the way, this is probably the most single important ingredient for success in almost everything we do in life. As the evidence explains, the reason why most mitzvahs surrounds our thinking is because what we think becomes how we feel, becomes who we are. We shape our feelings, we shape our attitudes, and we shape it by our thinking. But the problem is we don't realize that the thoughts in our brain aren't necessarily for our good and aren't necessarily correct. One of the most important lessons for a human being to learn is not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is correct. And not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is something that I want to think about. There are various forces within me and different elements, some pulling this way, some pulling that way, and they control my mind as much as I control my mind. Let's give it for instance. Let's say I have a lazy streak within me. I'm lazy. When I say, I don't want to do this because, and I give a rationale, I have to understand that it's the laziness within me that's taking control of my mind, spins out that tail, and that tail flashes in front of my brain. The tail that that laziness causes my brain to say isn't necessarily true and isn't necessarily something that I want to think. If you'd like to understand the human being, we are very, very complex. You see, there are many parts to me. There's anger, there's jealousy, there's laziness, there's arrogance. And there are many different midos. My brain is something that sometimes I control, but sometimes is taken over by different forces. If you've ever thought a thought that you don't want to think, I don't want to think that thought, so why am I thinking it? Because I can't control it. What do you mean you can't control it? You are the brain, right? I am the Just don't think it. Guys understand what I'm saying when I tell them, don't think about a certain image. But the image comes back. But I don't want to think it, but it comes back. But don't. And I'll make it simple. And let's imagine you have trauma. And you don't want to think a thought. So just don't think it. Why can't you just not think the thought? And the answer is because my brain isn't me. You see, I'm the guy inside. I, the Neshama, was put into this body. And I exist in this body. I view this world through these eyes. And I think through this brain. But I am not the brain. As a very simple observation... And when it's over, my body's put in the ground, they bury my arms, my legs, my head, my chest, my stomach, and my brain. I am the guy inside. And I'm the one who has to think through my brain. I'm the one sometimes who I control the brain, and sometimes the brain controls me. 
Sometimes different parts of me takes over my brain. Sometimes it makes me think things that I don't want to think. But I am not the brain. If you'd like to fundamentally understand who you are, I have a muscle that I think is very important. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Imagine the following scene. Imagine you have a family, five school-age kids, they're eating dinner, and after dinner, they all head to the one family computer. Now, obviously, depending on which child gets control of the keyboard, it will determine what's shown on the screen. If one of the children wants to do his math homework, you're going to see a math program. If one of the children wants to play a game, you're going to see a game. But all five children are watching the screen. And that's a muscle. You see, the brain is that screen. Sometimes I control the keyboard and the thoughts are my thoughts. Sometimes my anger controls that. You ever notice when I get angry, furious, suddenly in warp speed, I think thoughts that are very, very different than I was thinking before. That guy deserves to be, you know what he deserves? You know what he, also, my brain starts spinning out thoughts that I never thought before. I start viewing him in a way I never viewed him before. I think things about him that I never thought before. How is that? Because anger got control of my brain and begins spewing out thoughts and ideas. I am the guy inside and I watch the screen and I see those thoughts, but I have to recognize that those thoughts are not me. Not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is true, and not every thought that crosses my conscious mind is me thinking them. And when you begin to understand that, and you have a very, very healthy disrespect for many of your thoughts, you can begin controlling your thinking. And there will be many, many times in life where you have to retrain your brain. Retrain your brain to think differently. And let's assume jealousy is my thing. I, I don't want to be, but I'm jealous. I see he's got a bigger house and he's got a better deal. I'm jealous. What do I have to do? I have to retrain my brain. I have to say to myself over and over, number one, Hashem gives out exactly what I'm supposed to get. I can't take more than I'm supposed to get. <clears throat> Hashem is fair. He deserves that. I deserve more than that. I can't take it from him. Hashem wants him to have that. Hashem wants me to have this exactly what I need, but I have to think this again and again and again, and eventually what happens is, my thoughts begin changing, my feelings begin changing, and I become a different person. I've worked with many, many people on depression. Now it's true that there's often a biological element to it, certain brain chemistry, but almost invariably, there's a very real cognitive part to it. What I mean by that is as follows. Imagine you have a fellow who has a little bit of a disposition towards negativity. People have different sort of natural dispositions. Some people by nature are very optimistic, and some people by nature are very pessimistic. Imagine we have a fellow who's pessimistic. And because he's pessimistic, and the thoughts that cross his brains are, things are not going to work out, I'm going to fail again, I'm going to lose my job, I'm not going to work, I'm, no one's going to marry me, I'm going to be a failure, I'm going to... And because his brain is thinking over and over pessimistic thoughts, well, guess what? He's depressed, he's down, he feels bleh. And But that's the point. Because he has a pessimistic bias, and therefore naturally his thinking goes that way, and naturally he begins feeling the way his thoughts are going. But he has to be trained to fight that and not give in. And the solution there is, to say to yourself over and over positive statements. 
look, I've succeeded before, and I've done well before, besides which Hashem takes care of me, and Hashem's in charge of the world. And by saying lines, positive lines, over and over and over, he starts training his mind, starts training his feelings, and suddenly he no longer feels depressed. And this Yisod, I believe, applies to so many areas in life, on the positive and the negative. And I'll explain to you what I mean on the negative. I once spoke to a fellow, and he was a in yeshiva. He was a very big masmid, and a very holy guy, and a very impressive person. He got married, and he had a problem. And he called me up a few years after he was married with his problem, and I listened to him, and he called me another time, another time, and I explained to him he has a small problem and a big problem. You see, he had a little bit of a liking towards men, but not strong, not anything terrible. He had a little bit of a inkling that way, but he had a much bigger problem. He had OCD. And obsessive and compulsive disorder really stems from obsessive thinking. The brain starts looping, just thinking and thinking and thinking, and you can't control the thoughts, and they race and they race, and they think the same line again and again and again. Anyway, because this fellow had a little bit of an inclination towards guys, he kept thinking about, maybe I'm gay, maybe I'm gay, maybe I'm gay, maybe I'm gay. Maybe I'm, you know, I, am, maybe, look at, I look at that guy, I look at that guy, I look at I want him, I want him. By doing this again and again and again through obsessive thinking, he made himself 100% gay. After a certain point, he no longer desired his wife, was only attracted to men, but that wasn't how he started. And I tried to explain to him that he's making himself, he's turning himself into this. And by thinking these thoughts when he was in yeshiva, he didn't have any of these problems. <clears throat> but the minute he got married, he realized there was a certain little inclination that way. And then he thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, until it became a flaming problem. But you see, his problem is not homosexuality. His problem is the obsessive thinking that's drawing him that way. And unless he gets control of those thoughts, he's toast. And my friends, I'd like to share with you that this issue applies to so many areas of life. It's frightening and it's, it's beyond description. Almost every area in life, <clears throat> what you think affects dramatically how you feel, <clears throat> affects how you act, affects you as a human being, and recognizing that the thoughts that cross my brain are not necessarily true is a tremendous concept to learn. That means in so many areas, whether it be anxiety, <clears throat> obviously depression, whether it be <clears throat> jealousy or anger or arrogance. I am. Do you know who I am? I'm the most important person in the world. I'm brilliant. I'm smart. I never make mistakes. Well, fellow, i got to ask you a question. Is that true? But here's the problem. The Balgaiva really feels that way. I don't want to feel that way. I just feel I'm God's gift to humanity. I don't want it, but I feel it. So what do you do? How do you help a guy like that? And so the answer is exactly what you say to the depressed person. You have to say to yourself over and over, number one, did I create myself? Number two, what happens if I get hit by a car or a Mack truck? The big powerful me won't be anymore. Besides which, how smart am I? I never made mistakes. I made mistakes here and there and there. But you see, what he has to do is he has to take control of his thinking. He has to take control of his thoughts because he's the opposite of the pessimistic person. You see, the arrogant person, his brain says to him, I'm great, I'm smart, I'm handsome, I'm wonderful. And all day long, 
his brain is spinning out thoughts that bring him to a sense of haughtiness, a sense of arrogance. But you see, it's not him. His brain has been taken over, and much like the depressed person has to learn to control his brain, and the arrogant person has to learn to control his brain, and has to learn to take back his mind. Taking back his mind means thinking again and again and again, humbling thoughts, realistic thoughts, understanding that, that I am but a human being, understanding that I am mortal, flesh and blood, and saying those thoughts again and again and again until he takes the air out and slowly, slowly, slowly starts deflating. I think what this Ebenezer is sharing with us is a fundamental concept in life. And when the Torah says, don't desire, says Ebenezer, how can I not desire? And the answer is, it's within your power, says Ebenezer, a man's heart is within his control. Why? Because it's the thoughts of your mind that create desire. Desire itself might be innate, but what you desire is learnt. And much like fat or skinny, much like tanned or, or white, white skinned. And much like the age of the person. Meaning it's true that desire itself might be inborn, but what we desire is learnt. And explains, Ezra, the more you train your mind to recognize that exactly that which I'm supposed to have, I will have. Exactly what he's supposed to have, he will have. And I will never be able to touch what he has. The more you recognize that, the less you're going to allow your mind to spin out and the less you're going to desire when you really get control of your mind, you don't desire what's not yours because it's like that villager who looks at the princess. It's so far removed, so impossible. I'm not going to desire it. It's like it's absurd. What am I going to dream about having wings to fly? And what the Ebenezer is teaching us is this concept that the way I think becomes the way I feel becomes who I am. But it starts with the thoughts. And learning to control my thinking is one of the great principles in life. What the Sefer Chinuch says is for the first year... And a husband and wife should spend as much time together as possible. Why? Because a man is training his eye. He's training his eye to be attracted to his wife, training himself to desire his wife, and training himself to see his wife as a woman, and no one else is a woman. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, there's so much we're bombarded, and then it becomes a very difficult task, but that ultimately is the, is the goal. But more than anything, understanding that that which I desire is controlled by my thinking. My moods are controlled by my thinking. My feelings are controlled by my thinking. And who I am for eternity is based on my thoughts. Understanding that allows me to begin taking control of me. Taking control of my brain, which means taking control of my moods, which means taking control of my destiny. And as Ebenezer explains, rov mitzvahs, most mitzvahs surround this fact. If you focus on the majority of mitzvahs, they're either to remember things or to think things. Because most of the mitzvahs are liyasha leva adam, to straighten out man's heart. There are very few mitzvahs that are just action related. Almost all the mitzvahs are to shape my thinking and to straighten out my heart to allow me to be a greater person. And I want to close with one last observation. I remember an example of this when I was a younger fellow. I was learning in Beis Medrash, and it happened to have been that most of the fellows that I went to high school with went on to college, and very few guys went on to Beis Medrash. And I was very happy learning. I was maybe 20 or so, I guess, and, 
And every once in a while, some of my buddies from the high school days would come by and, hey, what are you wasting time learning all day? Come on, why don't you get a career? Why don't you get a... And it didn't really phase me that much. <clears throat> but one day, I was learning Musa Seder, and I imagined a mushal that was very, very powerful. <clears throat> I imagined that I was sitting in the sandbox. I and my Chavrusa were sitting in the sandbox. <clears throat> but in the sandbox wasn't sand, but with diamonds. And I picked up a diamond... And I showed it to my chavrus. He said, oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, here's another one. He put one in his pocket. I put one in my pocket. Oh, here's a two-carat one. Take this. Oh, take this. Oh, and then as we're doing this on and on, one of my buddies from the old days comes by and says, hey, what are you guys doing? Wasting your time playing in the sandbox, playing with those little, little rocks. You want to see a rock? This is a rock. And he takes an earth rock from the ground and says, look, this weighs two pounds. Those little things you weigh, carrots, those are nothing. This is a real rock. That mushal was very important for me. Why? Because that was my reality. What I was doing was learning Torah, which is the most valuable thing I could have been doing at the time. It's for eternity, it's forever. But the problem was, on a certain level, when a friend of mine from the old days said, yeah, but come on, you're wasting your time. You could be getting a career, you could be advancing yourself. There was a little bit of a problem. And to strengthen myself, to straighten out my thinking, that muscle was something that I thought again and again and again. Why? Because I understood Torah is more valuable than anything in the world, but I didn't feel it enough. But by thinking that muscle and thinking it and spending a Musa Seder, and a Musa Seder means 20 minutes, a half hour, and it means a number of times a day, and maybe a number of times a week, over and over, eventually it becomes more concrete, more palpable, you feel it more, and suddenly I feel, not just intellectually understand the value of Torah, I actually feel it. And this concept is what the evidence is teaching us, and then almost every area in life, you have to get control of your thinking, because ultimately that's what controls your feelings, ultimately that controls who you are. Okay, and now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations, for or against, on this topic or any other topic. Um, <clears throat> okay, here's an interesting question by an unnamed fellow, and <clears throat> you'll see in a minute why he's unnamed. How should we respond to our wife? I guess he means he. How should I respond to my wife if she's jealous of a friend's diamond engagement ring? She feels her diamond isn't as clear. Is she right to feel this way, or is this considered spoiled? What is a good way to respond to her? The subject came up many times, and I would usually tell her not to covet, and it's important to feel grateful for what you have. Okay, so let me be very, very candid. It is, can I, can I be polite? Since you're, you're anonymous, unnamed, I, I could just be candid, right? I don't, I don't have to be coy, I could be just very straight. Okay, if I could be straight, I would say to you, do me a favor, don't be a tzaddik on someone else's problems, on someone else's places. Meaning, you're not jealous, I'm very impressed, but your wife is. And don't go be a macher, tell your wife she shouldn't be jealous, she is. To you, diamonds don't really matter, but guess what, to her, that really does. Now, is it true that she should work on herself? Yeah, that's her job, but it's not your job. It's not your job to tell her not to be jealous, and it's not your job to, your job is to say, I feel bad, I wish I could, I, I, if I had the money, I'd buy you a dozen diamonds, I'd buy you a room full of, the, I, I, I wish I could, I, I can't, but I wish I could. Your job, the job of your wife is to work on recognizing that these things are silly, it's passing, it's trinkets, can you tell the difference in a cubic zirconium and a real one? No, who knows anyway. But the point is, that's, that's her battle, your battle is to feel her pain. And it's a very easy thing to say, you know, listen, I don't need stuff, you know, so, uh, you know, to me, what the house looks like doesn't really bother me. So, and my wife's so much into, 
And the Gashmir, she wants a couch and, and she wants to paint the house. And she, well, it's a waste of money. That's very nice because those things don't matter to you. <clears throat> but that's not your job. <clears throat> your job is to be there, recognize that you have your Nisyonos, she has her Nisyonos, you're different people. <clears throat> your job is to work on your stuff, her job is to work on her stuff. And when she complains that she doesn't have, it's a real feeling. And she's legitimately entitled. If she was a great Sadekis, would she feel it? No. Guess what? She's not a great Sadekis, but I got news for you. You're probably not either a great Sadek. Because if you were a great Sadek, you'd be much more compassionate and you wouldn't be asking that question. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for being so rude. But that's the point. The point is, you're right. We all should work, we all should grow. And in theory, if your wife were asking me, should she be jealous? The answer is no. She should work on it, and etc. But one thing for sure, you as the husband, that's not your job to tell her. Your job is to feel her pain. Your job is to recognize that it's a big sign. For you, it may not be. But for her it is, because guess what? You're a guy, and she's a woman. Okay, enough said. Okay, um, please feel free, by the way, you want to raise your hand. We have, um, this is open floor, so that means you can raise your hand, and you can ask questions. Uh, we have, uh, please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. Um, okay, here's an interesting question typed in. How do we look at mistakes that we make through the lens of Bitochen? For example, a person is waiting for an important business meeting, but forgets to put it on his calendar. He misses the meeting and he therefore misses the opportunity. Or a person is faced with a tough business decision and makes the wrong call. It sinks his business. If he would have been better educated himself on the issue before making his decision, he would have made the right decision. How do we think about these mistakes through the lens of Bitochen? Okay, that is a very important question and very, very applicable to many situations in life. So let me give you in a very, very clear terms. If a person is reckless, if a person is not prudent, if a person is irresponsible, then he should say, I am a fool. I ruined my opportunity. But if a person is prudent, if a person is responsible, if a person does his best, and guess what? He missed the meeting. I should be much more organized. I'm not. I am who I am. Now listen, I'm not making an excuse, and I have to work on it, and I have to learn to be organized, make sure my calendar's up. But I am who I am, and I tried my best, and it didn't work. I have to recognize that, guess what? Hashem runs the world. I could have just as easily somehow remembered, and I could have just as easily somehow been there, but guess what? It wasn't supposed to be. But again, this is the point. If I was, if I was not responsible, if I were reckless, if I wasn't prudent, let's say I have a million dollars, and I say, you know what, I'm going to throw it on this stock and that stock, and, that, and it goes away, it blows up, and I have nothing left. I should say to myself, fool, why did I do that? That was reckless and irresponsible. But assuming I have a certain amount of money to invest, and I think about it, I study the market, I ask expert advice, and I ask financial planners, and this is the decision, this is the wise decision, I take that money, I make that investment, and I know that exactly what's supposed to happen will happen. Oh my goodness, it crashed in the market. That's a Shem's world. My responsibility is to do my best, to use my best wisdom, my best understanding, to put in my best effort. If I made that conscious, clear-headed, carefully calibrated decision, and it turned bad, that's life. If I was reckless and irresponsible, then that's my problem. But again, I think that really is the answer. If I made a wrong call, so again, if I was lazy, and I didn't do my homework, or I just, you know... I show up to work drunk and made a bet. 
you know, don't go blaming God for your mistakes. But assuming that I went about my business the way I normally do, and assuming that I'm reasonably responsible and careful and I do as I'm supposed to, what happens is the Yad Hashem. And again, you're, it's a very good question because it happens all the time and it really it's something that applies in many other situations. Okay, what about coveting others in terms of mitzvahs? Examples living in Israel. Okay, you are 100% allowed to covet, I don't like the word covet, you're allowed to be jealous of other people's mitzvahs. That's called kinesofrim. sofrim, it's mar b'chokhme, you're allowed to be jealous of a person's learning, you're allowed to be jealous of a person's various chusim and mitzvahs, but with one important caveat. I want them to have, I'm very happy that they have that mitzvah, I also want it. And the only thing you have to be careful about is, he, look at that big mitzvah he has, and I, don't, I want that. I don't want him to have it. I want it. That's very, very dangerous and very, very bad. If I see someone who has a tremendous mitzvah, yeah, I'll give you an example to me. And one, of the, one of the Jews that I'm very jealous of, and I say this often, is Michael Rothschild. Michael Rothschild started the Chavetz Chaim Foundation, uh, Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, and he has singly made a dramatic change in the client's soul. And speaking of Lashon he's a machine over there. I live in Muncie and I visited the place. He has 30 employees, 40 employees who do one thing, sending out messages, sending out various booklets and various formats to teach the Jewish nation not to speak Lashon Hara. I have to tell you, I am jealous of his world to come. And by the way, I told this to him, one, we were together one simple story, and I said that word, I'm jealous of your Olam Haba. I told him, I'm not jealous of your Olam Hazik because I was a Rebbe, I was in Yeshiva, I was happier than I was, but I told him I'm jealous of his Olam Haba. But you have to understand the point. I don't want him not to have it. I would like to also have it. I see what he's accomplished, and it's tremendous, and it's amazing, and I want that. That's a very healthy concept that drives me to do more. It pushes me to accomplish more, and that type of jealousy is fine. Again, I want him to have it, but I also want it. That's absolutely kosher. It's fine. It's material objects. It's honor. Those are the areas where jealousy is wrong, where coveting is wrong. Okay, what if someone has a husband who's learning more, and the wife will want her husband to learn more? Okay, so let's be very, very careful there, because again, we are crossing, um, we are crossing that machitza. So again, if I am a husband and I see a guy learning more, and I want to learn more, that's great. <clears throat> a wife, <clears throat> you got to be very careful, because it's not your job. Your husband has his job in life, and <clears throat> that guy has that job. Um, <clears throat> each person has different strengths, different weaknesses, different nishonos, um, <clears throat> and I would be very, very careful about that, because I think that's going to lead to a lot of strife, a lot of, a lot of problems. I would say to a woman like that, you work on you. Your job is to support your husband. Your job is to bring up your family. Your job is to be a tzaddikus. That means to dominant work in a moon. And, and you be a support for your husband. It's not your business how much your husband learns or doesn't learn. That's not your responsibility. That's not your job. That's your husband's responsibility. Your job is to do your part. His job is to do his part. And I would tell you, you should not be looking at other husbands saying, why isn't my husband learning as much as it? That's, I, I would caution you not to do that. You're crossing the machitza, and I would tell you, avoid that. You worry about you. If you tell me there's another woman who, who treats her husband with more respect, 
I tell you, that's good to be jealous of. Tell me there's another woman who spends more time with her children, more attention with her children, and you're jealous of that. That's good. Focus on your job. Your job is to work on you. Your husband's job is to work on him. <clears throat> your job is to work on you. It's when you cross the mechitza that trouble begins. When the husband feels responsible for his wife's ruchnius level, <clears throat> when the wife feels responsible for the husband's ruchnius, then you get all kinds of trouble. It's not your job. <clears throat> you keep your eyes on your side of the mechitza. Your job is to grow and accomplish. You're going to be asked when you leave this earth, what did you do? How much did you accomplish? You're not going to be asked, why didn't your husband learn more? That's not yours. I, what do you want, I'm a, I did what I could. What, what do you want from me? And they don't ask you, why didn't he learn more? They ask you, why didn't you do your part better? So the bottom line is, I would stay out of that concept and, and just avoid it. Okay, we'll take another couple of questions. Actually, I have a question that I have to answer because someone emailed us in earlier and... And I would like to deal with it. Okay, good evening. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your shurim. There's also a chance to ask a question. My question is, if a person is diagnosed with an emotional disorder, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc., and they act in ways sometimes that they feel they wouldn't want to act, is that still the same wrongdoing? Obviously, a person has bechira, but then if a person is really struggling and the behavior is part of a disorder, what is the Torah's view on that? So let me be very, very clear. There are thousands of degrees of difference in any one action. Any mitzvah and any avera could have thousands of degrees of differences between it. I'll give you a simple example. Imagine for a minute that I daven for the Ahmad. And imagine I have a good voice. This one's going to take a little creativity. But imagine I get up there and I, oh, and I do a beautiful job. And that could be a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. Or it could be the opposite. It depends on one thing. What am I thinking? If I get up there and think to myself, I want to be Mekadeshim Shemayim, and I want people to have good kavana, and I sing every word thinking exactly what the words mean, it's a beautiful act. If I get up there and say, I want the world to hear my melodic voice, and to hear what a cantor I am, ta-da! That's an act of, it's an act of debasing the tefillah, it's an act of gaiva, it's an act of ugliness. There can be thousands of degrees of difference in one action. And as my kavana, as my intentions dramatically impact my action, so too whether the action is easy for me or difficult for me or what's involved. <clears throat> Meaning for one guy, I'll, I'll give you a classic example. There's a fellow I know who for many years would not down with a minion. Not down with a minion. Obviously he's not a very firm guy, right? Because he would never down with a minion. And you have to admit, he's clearly not a real uh, Bar Madrega because he doesn't down with a minion, except one problem. The reason why he wouldn't down with a minion is because he had social anxiety. And whenever he was standing, too close to this guy, too close to that guy, too close, he, he couldn't down with a minion because it would drive him nuts. So guess what? For that guy, he's putter from dominating with a minion, and I don't believe there's going to be any complaint in Shemayim. Why didn't you down with a minion? Couldn't, couldn't down So obviously, who you are and what you're going through dramatically impacts the Nisayan, and dramatically impacts the Mitzvah or the Avera. Chazal tell us, Me'apamim, 100 times you do the same Mitzvah in Bitzar, it can be worth 100 times of doing it not Bitzar, not in pain. Because there are many, many gradients, many, many levels. So obviously, if a person is suffering anxiety or depression or whatever the issue may be, obviously that impacts every action they do. And a very small action of that person may be equal to a huge act of somebody else because for him, it was a very, very difficult assignment. For the other person, it might be very easy. 
Meaning to say, if I... I'll give you a muscle to make it very clear. <clears throat> it's not clear yet. I used to run. And I used to run... I thought I ran, ran well. I thought I ran pretty quickly. I run five miles in about 35 minutes or so, seven minutes a mile. I thought I was doing real well. And then I read about this guy who was not anywhere near that running speed. Uh, in fact, he was running like eight miles, eight minutes a mile. And he was a strange part. He was a Marine. This guy was supposed to be a top Marine. And he was only doing eight-minute miles. And here I was, out of shape rabbi, and I'm running seven-minute miles until I found out that he was running it with a 90-pound pack on his back. And when you put a 90-pound pack on your back and you have to hunch over because you'll fall, if you, and you're able to run eight-minute miles, oh, that's a whole different ball game. You see, each of us have a different load on our shoulders. And for one person, what might be easy, for another person might be a great challenge. And Hashem knows the cheshben. It's not our job to judge because we don't know. But again, if a person has anxiety or depression, whatever it may be, and that very small act of theirs might be a huge accomplishment. And the opposite, they do things that are wrong, they may not be anywhere near held accountable. At the end of the day, Hashem is the shofet, Hashem is the judge, and we don't know, it's Hashem's job. Okay, let me just close one quick um, point. The Shmuz sweepstakes is now going ongoing. This is the big fundraiser for the year. Uh, it's very, it's coming to a close. We really postponed it a little bit because we weren't quite at the, people responded very generously, but we have a little bit more to go. So it's been postponed. So it's, the drawing is still on. It's a $100,000 uh, sweepstake. If you enter any entry, you get an opportunity to win the $100,000 grand prize, as well as many other Schmooze gifts. There's the Schmooze, um, there's a copy of the new book, the pre-publication book of the 10 Really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. And there's the Musavad, which is 30 shurim on the first four prokem of Mesul Sharim on a USB. And the various gifts, if you go to the shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, you could see all the gifts. You have the opportunity to support Torah, the opportunity to win a $100,000 prize. You have the opportunity for these gifts. But again, more than anything, it's an opportunity to help to support, support the shmuz. I thank you for joining. I hope you'll see you all next week. Thank you very much. Have a good Shabbos.